Episode number six with artist and photographer Renee Cox. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with the provocative artist and photographer, Renee Cox. Born in Colgate, Jamaica, into a West Indian heritage that instills unwavering confidence into their youth, Renee and her family eventually settled in Scarlesdale, New York, while in her teens. After graduating with a degree in film studies from Syracuse University, Renee began a groundbreaking career in commercial photography, first cutting her creative teeth in Paris with visionary fashion designers like Issey Miyake and Claude Montana, before returning to the States to shoot for publications like Seventeen, Mademoiselle, Essence, and Cosmopolitan. She even produced the poster for Spike Lee's film, School Days. However, the birth of her first son, along with an encounter with fine art photographer Lyle Ashton Harris, caused Renee to question her own legacy and the impact of the images she was creating. She enrolled into the Masters of Fine Arts program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, and was later selected for the Whitney Independent Studies program, the first artist to do so while pregnant. Using her own body as a template, her work is dedicated to the deconstruction of stereotypes and reconstitutes the identity and dignity stripped from Black bodies during the transatlantic slave trade. Her piece titled It Shall Be Named, which depicts the chilling illusion of a lynched man castrated from his manhood, debuted in the groundbreaking show Black Male Representations of Masculinity in Contemporary Art at the Whitney Museum in New York, curated by Thelma Golden, now the director-in-chief curator of the Studio Museum in Harlem. Often controversial, her work Yo Mama's Last Supper, which was shown at the Brooklyn Museum in 2001, reimagined Leonardo da Vinci's masterpiece The Last Supper, with Renee as a new Jesus, surrounded by the Twelve Apostles, all black, except for Judas, who was white. Rudolph Giuliani, then the mayor of New York at the time, denounced the work as anti-Catholic and formed a panel to create decency standards for all art shown at publicly funded museums in the city. Her present work leans heavily into her own spiritual practice, exploring sacred geometry and the use of fractals to create sculptural kaleidoscopes. Recorded during lockdown, this colorful conversation with Renee Cox is her in her most untrammeled and illuminated form. We speak of fashion, art, and why it's important to have a plastic surgeon with a beautiful office. It is with great pleasure that I introduce to you, my dear friend, artist Renee Cox. Renee, welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm slightly nervous. What? Just, you know, what will be revealed? Mm. <laughs> what, oh, come on. You what, set, now you're setting it up. You're setting it up. Oh, no, 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 yeah. no. This is amazing. Um, I just, one, just thank you so much for for coming on to my very nascent podcast. Right. Um, which is really the one, just what, speaking... Am I the one black woman that kept the appointment? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> because okay. of my masculine tendencies now. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> well, you know, you know, speaking speaking of masculine tendencies, tell me a little bit about how you came into 
feminism or being known as the black feminist photographer? For me, I mean, that's just a label that people have put on me. It's not, I mean, my belief is very simple ever since I was a little kid, you know, okay, yes, I'm a girl, but if I have certain abilities and I'm referencing in particular, like say sports when I was young, like I played basketball and I played basketball well. So, and I play basketball with the boys. So why shouldn't I be on the boys team? You know what I'm saying? Because, and at the school that I was at at the time, they didn't have a girls team, so it wasn't an option. So I was just like, yo, like I should be playing. So I took my story, I don't know, it's like 13 or something. Took my story, did a newspaper, and you know, <laughs> I had like a story <laughs> about me. <laughs> And, uh, you know, they let me play. So, I mean, so I've never felt any sort of um, barrier mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, my womanhood, so to speak. Um, now, is that feminist? Whatever, you know what I'm saying? Do I believe women should be paid the same? Absolutely, you know what I'm saying? All of that. We should have the same rights, blah, 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 blah. To put it into that feminist package, it sometimes feels a little uncomfortable because I don't feel that um, the uh, the movement has been inclusive from one very specific example that I have. Years ago, I went to a WAC meeting, Women's Action Coalition. And at the time, I you know, raised my hand in the Quaker meeting house and I said, hey, what about, you know, these, these black women that was killed up in the Bronx, you know, by the police? This is like 20 years ago, but it's the same story that we hear every day now, right? And I'm like, you know, that was completely outrageous and this, that, and the next thing. And the white woman who was moderating this uh, talk or whatever was like, oh, we're not dealing with those kind of problems. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. And that was like, wow. to me, that was like just a huge turnoff. Yes, it was just one incident, but it was enough to turn me off to that as an organization, as like a thing. So, I mean, for me, it's like, I don't necessarily call myself a feminist. I just believe that we should have the same rights and the same opportunities as a man could have. And, and that's it. You mentioned... Um this meeting um, that you went to where, you know, you, you mentioned this black woman being killed in the Bronx, and it made me think about the current moment we were in now with Ahmaud um, and like another police shooting. Yeah, but um, this has been going on for 400 years. The only, right. advantage, the only advantage now that we have, like when I started out as an artist 20, 30 years ago, I had to go to like the Schomburg, I had to go through like, you know, what do you call it? microfiche, microfilms and look through like local fucking newspapers, you know, and bumfuck USA or whatever. And, you know, and then you start seeing things, you know, like lynchings and things like that. I mean, I found it was like a lynching of like a, a black man, like I think it was in Central Park or something like that in the like late 70s, 80s. You know, but nobody talks about it. It's like, it was like two lines in the paper, you know, but back then, you didn't have the social media, you didn't have the access to video and you know what we're doing now, podcasts or anything. So to get the message out was much more difficult. Now, because I mean, Rodney King, Rodney King was like the game changer, right? It was on videotape. 
then finally it was like, oh, wow, that's what those black people have been talking about, that they've been being abused by LA, you know, PD. Ah, amazing. Look, here it is. And I mean, now we hear about it every freaking week because everybody, you know, has a camera, which is a great thing, but it's surprising to me that it hasn't made any goddamn difference yet since Rodney King, right? So, and they continue. I don't know what's wrong, but I mean, what, I just say, I don't know, there's something wrong with, you know, Caucasian people's DNA or something like that. It's like, it's unbelievable to just kill, can continually kill and oppress people on a perpetual basis and think it's okay. I don't get it. And I'm not saying all oh, white people are bad because I married one. But what I am saying, there's a lot of y'all out there that are, I mean, out of your fucking mind. You know, you're at the state house in Michigan with guns. Who does that? <laughs> you know, I'm like, to me, that's like outrageous. You know, isn't the first thing you should do is maybe write a letter, get a petition up, <laughs> you know, something. But no, you're there with your, your weapons and stuff. I mean, that just goes to show how you think. Yeah, and that's not civilized. It's completely uncivilized as far as I'm concerned. And we as black folks, you know, have been taking the brunt of this shit, you know, for 400 years. And it's, it's sickening. It's time for it to be over. Wow, okay. Um, I mean, you gotta call a, you know, a hobby a hobby. You know, <laughs> <laughs> call a spade a spade. Well, let's reverse that. Yeah. And it's like they continue, they keep getting away with it, you know? And you talk about it again. And why do you want to talk about that? You know what I'm saying? What do you mean why I want to talk about that? Every week there's something. Every fucking So, I mean, no, it's time to like really fucking talk about it. And so, do you have hope for America, for like some kind of American redemption? First of all, let me say this I don't like the word hope. Because hope implies that you didn't have nothing. <laughs> you don't have anything and you ain't gonna get nothing. So I'm not into the word hope at all. You know, I would like to say, um, I believe or I trust, but I'm being very generous with my trust, that uh, there'll be a shift eventually. But historically, my, my personal research says to me, probably not so much. <laughs> because the way they act is not new. <laughs> They've been acting like this ever since what Mel Dixon did his film Braveheart. And I don't mean when he did it, I'm saying the time frame that he covers in the film. <laughs> right? So, I mean, they've been just running around killing people right and left since, you know, for freaking centuries ago. Yeah, and then over the last 400, they assumed the, the dominant position. You know, like I said, every culture has its day, right? So we've been dealing with them for the last 400. The Mon Mongolians, they ruled the world for what, like 35, 40 years. So I really feel like it can shift. And that's where I say I trust that there can be a change, that maybe there'll be another more dominant force, but one that is more um, interested in um, being conscious and uh, being civilized towards humanity. Yeah, I, I, I feel that, I feel that. And I love, 
I thank you for reminding me that you don't like using the word hope and need. I remember we spoke about this. Right. Could you could you explain a little bit further? And then also, you know, your views on spirituality and like the power of the spoken word. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the spoken word is very powerful, contrary to what you were told growing up which was sticks and stones will break your bounds, but words will never hurt you. Uh, wrong information, <laughs> you know, that is not true. Um, the word, okay, there's like hope, there's like need, there's problem, and there's others. And these words evoke a, um, a negativity, you know, and a, a sort of subordination too, you know, because hope is also like associated with it's not me that can change my situation. There's some exterior force out there that I should be, I don't know, praying to or whatever. And in that case, that's when I say to black folks, God does obviously does not like you, okay? Because if he liked you, you wouldn't have been going through this shit for the last 400 years. <laughs> so you need to find somebody else to pray to because it ain't working <laughs> yeah when i go to places like ghana or even jamaica we've got like some kind of church every four feet <laughs> i'm like what is wrong you know you don't even have paved roads and shit you know obviously it's not working for you so you need to find some other entity or whatever so having said that, I don't believe in the entity that lives with outside of my uh, realm of things. I think the change, all change has to come from within. And in this life situation that we're in, I think it's about trying to get to a higher level of consciousness, which means getting out of our head getting out of that egoic mind. Because why do people act like this? Because they're in their head. They're listening to that little voice in their head that's going, you're an idiot, you're fat, you're ugly, you're this, you're that, you're not enough, you need to be this. Why don't you buy that? It's on and on and on. And you've gotta be able to quiet that voice. Like it will never go away, but you can keep it at bay, you know, so that you're not living with this 24 hours a day. And for me on my own personal journey, once I discovered that, it changed my life, you know? It was like bricks were taken off of my shoulders, you know? Because then at that juncture, you're not worried, you're not, you're not competitive, you're not worried about what this one's doing, that one's doing, you know? You turn it within. And that's where the change comes from. You know, all this other stuff that our society like imposes upon you to be thinking about, you know, 24 hours a day is completely irrelevant and unhealthy. And that's why everybody's going to some shrink or on talk space or whatever the hell it is and taking medication. <laughs> and it's not, it's not necessary. Because once you realize that that voice is coming out of the egoic mind, you can tell that voice to shut the fuck up but you have to be vigilant about it because each thought you've got to attack it, basically. You know, people think, okay, well, you know what? I don't, I'm, I'll wait till four o'clock in the afternoon to deal with all the negative thoughts that I had today. And I'll do a meditation and I'm like, well, good luck. That's not gonna help you. 
You know, so you got to deal with it one by one as they come in. And in the beginning, it's fun, actually. It's like a game. Because you, you surprise yourself as to how many of them are coming in. So, I mean, that has been sort of, in short form, my journey. It takes, you know, roots from Buddhism, which is like to say, you're God, I'm God. You know, if you're going down that path <laughs> that God resides within. But funny enough, when I was in Catholic school, even a Jesuit priest kind of told me that, but I was like eight years old, so I didn't get the fullness of it. Like he goes, you don't have to go to church. You're, you know, your church is within. And I was just happy to hear that because I hated church. I thought it was stupid, you know, especially Catholic church, you know, up, down, fucking hymns, kneel down again. It's uncomfortable, you know what I'm saying? Then somebody passing around a basket, asking for money. Then we're, we don't believe in the pagans yet. We're going to have you take Holy Communion. So come up here and eat this dried up piece of bread, but you can't chew it. So you got to have this crap on the roof of your mouth like for hours. Then they give you some bad wine, which is supposed to be his blood. I'm like, wait a minute, why am I eating his body and drinking his blood? Isn't that like cannibalism? Like, what the hell is that? You know, <laughs> who does that? People in Papua New Guinea, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> you know? And then when you see the shit that they, you know, invented during the Inquisition, I'm like, you're like sadomasochists. Yeah, y'all are crazy. How to pull out people's fucking fingernails, you know, waterboarding, going back to the 15th century, honey. And and they, it's out there, it's out there. They're not hiding it. They're proud of the shit, proud. Yeah, how evil they can be. I'm like, whoa, not cool. So hence, getting out of your head and following your own path is where I see things. If people do that, then you'll see a change, you know? Because then you don't have all this rat race and, you know, they're like anxious and all this sort of stuff that could be, you know, reduced. When did that transition happen for you? And like, what was your life like before and after, you know what I mean? Like you've had one, an amazing career, right? Two kids right. married. And then, like, insecure, you know what I'm saying? Bothered if somebody said they didn't like the work, you know, depressed for like three months, whatever. You know, I mean, I'm not going to show up when I'm outside because I got to put on a face, right? So I got to look strong and shit. But you know what I'm saying? Behind the scenes, crying, feeling sorry for the little me. So, what happened was basically, what happened, this is when you make the change. You make the change when you just can't take it anymore, <laughs> you know? People say they can't take it anymore, but they, their identity is wrapped up in their craziness, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, mm -hmm. I reached that point where I was like, I can't deal with this anymore. And fortunately, a friend of mine had turned me on to this book that I couldn't listen to until I had reached rock bottom of um by Eckhart Tolle living the liberated life and dealing with the pain body and this is how the story goes it sounds like fabricated but it's not I was in Bali I was in a beautiful hotel I was the first guest to ever stay in my little villa I had a butler too that just came with the room 
I'm traveling by myself. Everything is great, gorgeous. And then the next thing is I'm like feeling sorry for the little me because I saw some younger artists or whatever had a show at, you know, some museum. And then I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'm being written out of the cabin and this and that and blah, blah, blah. Woe is me. You know, it's like, what, what's my, you know, if I had a gun, I would have shot myself. You know, it's like my life doesn't mean shit. You know, I should have had a retrospective by now. I should have a book. I should have this. I should have that. You know, people should roll out the red carpet whenever I come. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> All of this, like, blah, 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 crazy, crazy, crazy. And I'm like crying and, you know, like that, like heaving, you know, the snot's running out of your nose and stuff. You know, a mess, complete mess. So then I put on the Eckhart Tolle. And if you're familiar with him, Eckhart talks very slowly. So finally now I can listen to him because before I couldn't listen to him because it wasn't fast. You know, I need a fast pace, right? So I'm listening to him. And long story short, he says one thing literally that changed my entire life, quite honestly, which was, why are you waiting for the world to validate you? And when I heard that, it was like, huh? I was like, holy shit, all my, I, oh, I'm like, <laughs> ever since I can remember, I've always, being an only child, the whole thing, always waiting for them to validate me. You know, and if they didn't validate me, I would go into insane land which is to say, why are you not validating me? Why aren't you telling me, you know, I'm smart, I'm cute, I'm talented, I'm this, I'm that. Boop, 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 you know, like, it, I wouldn't even get in people's faces sometimes with this bullshit, which is a clear sign of madness, okay? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, oh my God, that, that, that's what I've been doing. So now he goes further. He says, okay, well, why are you doing that? And then he talks about the egoic mind and he talks about that voice in your head telling you that, you know, you're the schmuck, you're this, you're that, because it's never positive, right? And you, mm. you believe it on some level, right? And then after that, then he does the one thing that I say a lot of other spiritual uh, leaders don't make really clear is he goes, you have to attack those thoughts one by one. And I was like, oh shit, now, I mean, now he's giving me a solution. You know, it's one thing to just say that, but now you got to give people a solution. He gives you a solution. He goes, as soon as a negative, he goes, think, he even says, think of it like a game. When a negative thought comes in, you got to go, oh shit, that's a negative thought. Oh. And when, for me, my technique was like, oh shit, negative thought, fuck you, get out of my head. And in the beginning, it was like, you know, all day long, right? One after the other. And by the time I stayed in, after I had this revelation, um, I was in Bali, I think another 10 days, I came back to New York. And when I came back to New York, my husband was like, he thought I had joined a cult or something. Because I was, I couldn't like listen to complaints. Mm. And I wasn't about complaining because one of the things he was explained, Complaints are fucking useless. Unless you're going to complain to the person that can make the fucking change. 
So, you know, me or whatever example I'm talking to you right now, talking about like some bad restaurant last night, is fucking useless. It just puts negativity out there. No, I had to talk to the owner of the restaurant, you know what I'm saying? So it was just like, and my husband's French, so complaint, that's national pastime, you know, <laughs> complaining. <laughs> so it was just like, I can't listen to this shit anymore. And he's like, oh my God, like what's wrong with you? Like <laughs> you've changed. And I would just go, I would just go to my bedroom and be like, you know, breathe, you know, take three conscious breaths because I don't even want to hear that. You know what yeah. I'm saying? I can't even listen to the complaints, you know, anymore, you know, without telling the person you need to redirect it. You're not doing yourself any good. It's toxic by just complaining. Yeah. If you can't figure out how to make the change or talk to the right people in order to make the change. So. And when did that happen for you? Like when it's in your just, life? I mean, now I think was it 10 years ago. Okay. So this is pretty recent. Oh yeah. No, I had to spend like the first fucking, you know, 40 years like miserable. That's where wow. I tell kids now I go like, listen, you know, I mean, I know how you all are, but whatever. It's a blessing that I'm talking to you about this shit now because back in my day, there was nobody talking about this. Mm. Yeah, nobody talked about that. It was like, go, 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 kill, kill, kill. You know? And I mean, even, you know, even when I was playing sports, you know what I'm saying? I would, I would play until I dropped dead, you know? Because it was like, oh, I gotta win, I gotta win, I gotta win, I gotta kill him, I gotta smash him, I gotta... Totally retarded, you know? So two total knee replacements later. Okay. <laughs> it's not necessary. Never. You know, even if you were a professional athlete, you know, it's a, it's another way of thinking. And so how did that change your practice or did it? Oh, no, it changed my practice considerably because when I came back from Bali, this is when I started working with fractals and sacred mm-hmm. geometry and creating these other bodies from all of these bodies. So taking the human form, but sort of reconfiguring it and creating like these other, what I call portraits. So it changed a lot. And also the patience to do that with the fractals and stuff. And people would ask me, there's no fucking algorithm. I don't wanna know what it's gonna look like before I start. And I work with an assistant because, yes, I'm an older generation, so my fingers on the laptop, you know, and Photoshop and remembering all the past codes and the shortcuts and stuff is like poo-poo. So, you know, I work with somebody younger who's, you know, more attuned to that stuff. And um, it would bring joy working because it's like you didn't know where this image was going to go. And then there'd be moments where you're like a little kid and you're like, oh my God, this is so fucking cool. Yeah. Look at this. I had no idea I could do this or this could be like that. And I loved it. Yeah. And I still do. So it's like, so yeah, it definitely changed my work. And, and could you talk a bit about like that transition from the you know, from the outside looking in, right? Like you had this transition, right, on the inside. Yeah, I did. And then with the work, what it was is like, okay, 
I don't know about you, but whenever I'm like feeling like, oof, I don't know what my next idea is going to be, I always go to portraiture. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, let me start doing portraits. So that it came from me doing like, I don't know, over probably like 200 portraits of people, you know, just shooting, shooting, shooting. I have no idea where it's going. I'm just shooting. And, and I have a, spe- a specific style of shooting portraiture, you know. You know, it's on the black velvet. I like to play with um, the body parts, meaning like I like to cover up some. And, you know, I get people into like really sort of athletic positions, you know, on ladders or whatever it may be. And uh, I like to make, they're not distortions, but they're, I guess, um, a distortion around sort of the body, you know. So I can have somebody like running, or they look like they're running even though they're not running. So that was the fodder for getting into the fractals and whatnot. So it, it came, it, the line, I mean, people are always so um, negative. They want to go, oh, but you were, it changed so much. You were, oh, boo, boo, boo. But I'm like, no, if you think for a nanosecond, it didn't because it just took the same portraiture that I've been doing, like since I've been in high school, I've always shot it the same way, just to another level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the same, mm-hmm. but now it's it's the 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 mix up is is different now, and it takes you to like another otherworldly kind of place. So I got into a certain point, and I let the work speak to me too. Like, I don't have like, a, it's not written in stone, but at a certain point of doing it, I realized I was sort of creating my own little universe. And and then you just keep going and that's it. And it's fun. And that's another key thing I say too. It has to be fun. Because if it's not fun, fuck it, I'm not doing it. Yeah, my mom. Because this thing of like people, oh, I have to suffer and this and that. No, I'm like, no, this is the fucking Kool-Aid that they gave you. So you can be fucking miserable, okay? And have to go and pay a shrink (laughs) for all of the miserable thoughts that you have and, you know, your way of being. And I'm like, no, you don't. Forget the starving artist. No, you should be happy and you should be doing something that you love and enjoy doing. Because if you do that, then that brings joy to the others. Let's let's actually take it back because prior to your fine artwork, you were working as a fashion photographer. Yeah. And specifically a fashion photographer in Paris mm-hmm. for like three years. What was is this the is this the eighties? Is is yeah. my timeline right? Like what was that like being a, a black female fashion photographer? in the 80s like in Paris like we've been we don't have that many we don't have that many black female fashion photographers now so what was that like and also what was that transition like into into fine art okay well well that's like I gotta break up the question okay well in the 80s me being a fashion photographer I mean that was something that I wanted to do from the time I was like in high school so one could say that was a manifestation. Um, 
Also, at that time, funny enough, I wasn't really think I didn't think about race. Okay, race wasn't like an obstacle to me because I had always been in these very white situations where I was the only black person anyway. You know what I'm saying? One out of like two, three hundred of my graduating class in high school. So I never felt any kind of barrier because, oh, you're black. Yeah. So I would just go roll up into wherever I felt I needed to roll up into. And the trajectory from, for me in the beginning was I had a, a mentor, even though rest in peace, Deborah Turberville, she didn't mm. know that, but she became my mentor after a four hour visit. Because when I was in college at Syracuse, I really loved her work, right? And when I moved to New York, obviously I wanted to meet her because like, oh my God, like you're like my idol, you know what I'm saying? And I must've called her like, I don't know, 10, 15 times, you know, it's like, I'm busy, you know, I don't have time, whatever, whatever. So let's say on the 15th try, um, I also have to give a little background. In those days, we didn't have internet and we didn't have any of that stuff. So it was like your office outside of your apartment would be a high-end department store, women's lounge, because they had pay phones, they had, you know, tables, desk and stuff. So you could write all your, you know, your notes and your file of facts or whatever it was. And you had the pay phone there. So I called her like on that 15 time and I was at Bloomingdale's at this, on this one occasion. And when she was giving me the brush off, I was like, oh wow, well, you know, I'm at Bloomingdale's. And then I knew where she lived because we used to have phone books. <laughs> so you could see people's, you know, their phone number and their address. So I said, I'm at Bloomingdale's and she was like, oh, wow, I, I live a block away, which I already knew, but I didn't say that. I was like, oh, really? Okay, fine. Come over and I can give you 15 minutes. I said, okay. I was there four hours. So her trajectory basically was she worked for Condé Nast magazine called Mademoiselle. And one day when the photographer who was doing the front of the book, which is all the little photographs, um, could make it, they said to her, you do it. So they liked it and then it snowballed into what became her career, right? So I was like, oh shit, okay. Because the big thing back then was that as a female, nobody was gonna hire you to be an assistant, like nobody. I even had a friend from school who was studio manager for Bill King, who was like a huge fashion photographer back in those days. And he's like, I can't hire you. You can't lift up a 300 pound tripod, you know, case. And I said, well, neither can you. Yeah, you know, like, like, so what are we talking about? I said, but I know one thing, if I even look like I'm trying to lift up a 300 pound tripod case, I know there's gonna be 10 guys over here helping me. <laughs> Random, just like that, okay? And like, you know, a snap of a finger. So I was like, okay, fine. So you're not gonna hire me. So I can't go that route. I can't go the route of, you know, working for somebody um, as an assistant. So I was running around, you know, I had a job at Fiorucci, which was like a really trendy store at the time. And then I was like, mom, boy. But I mean, okay, I'm cute, but I'm a little bit short for mom. Boy. 
So it's like, I'm like, hi, I'm a model. I'm 16 years old. Means I'm at my 21, you know, blah, 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 blah. And um, for the most part, yeah, not so great, right? But I go to see Glamour Magazine, um, who does a story every year of the girl who just graduated from college and is looking for a job in New York. Bingo, that's me. <laughs> so I get the job. It's supposed to be two days with Bridget Lancome shooting, and it ends up being four days. So at the end of the fourth day, you know, we kind of knew each other. We had a good rapport and whatnot. And the editor said to me, you know, have you ever considered working for a fashion magazine? So because of my visit with Deborah Turbeville, I didn't even have to hesitate <laughs> as to whether or not I'd ever consider working for a fashion magazine. I was like, oh, oh, I mean, oh, I'd love to work for a fashion magazine. And in those days, I used to dress crazy, like wear harem pants and fuchsia and have one teal shoe and the other one would be green and makeup, you know, just like crazy, cool, cool, like fashion kid. So they love that because they need to have that kind of energy up in there, you know, because it can get real trust fundy up in those kind of magazines. <laughs> so anyway, so they brought me in and I worked there for uh, like about a year and a half until I got married and then moved to France. And then also I used it as a platform because when you work with Condé Nast, everybody does everything for you, okay? Meaning, that sometimes my boss would come in and the waiting room would be full of like models and shit. And they're like, wait, what's going on? Like, who, why are these models here? And the reception, oh, they're here to see Renee. <laughs> so I was testing, making my connections with the model agencies while under the umbrella of Condé Nast, you know, where everybody loves you. And also to my uh, people in the market, you know, the designers, and the uh, different houses. So I could borrow clothes, I had models, so on and so forth. So I actually started building my portfolio. Plus I had access to the closet, the closet, okay? <laughs> so I started building my portfolio. So let's pivot to your fine artwork. I remember from an earlier conversation that you uh, encountered the artist Lyle Ashton Harris, who's another amazing photographer. Um, and you saw a way to give your images uh, legacy, you know, that they would mean more than just, you know, being in a fashion magazine. Um, but, but what role does the gaze play in your fine artwork? The gaze. We're going to talk about the gaze. <laughs> <laughs> the the, the G-A-Z-E, not the G-A-Y-S. Yeah. The gaze, I think it's important for us as people of color to maintain our own gaze and to own it. So this is why in all of my work, I'm always returning the gaze to the viewer because I want the viewer to feel involved in this photograph on some level or another, whether it's politically, you know, from a guilt point of view of <laughs> results of colonization, whatever. Mm -hmm but they're not going to, whatever happens, I'm not going to be their hot and tight Venus. I'm not going to be made a spectacle of, you know, without implicating them. Like, mm. like a little Rembrandt lighting there. No, I always had that light with me. 
I'm like, never leave home without your proper lighting. <laughs> would you would you ever get plastic surgery or have you? <laughs> would I ever? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, definitely make corrections. I mean, I have. Oh, amazing. No shame in the game. Yeah. No, I had a tummy tuck, but not. I had my tits done because, you know, I breastfed. So when you breastfeed, they suck out all the fat. So then you look like somebody from, I don't know, some Amazonian tribe who like breastfed the entire, you know, group. So you have these little triangular flat pancakes. You've seen that look. You know, whenever they shoot those people in the bush somewhere in South America or Africa, and they're sitting around in the circle and whatnot. <laughs> and then you got the 15-year-old girls whose titties are like, bing, like up in the air. And then they pan over to maybe somebody that's in my age range. <laughs> and the tits are just like, the tits are just like pendulous. It's like a V, you know, and they're flat because they sucked the fat out. So after they sucked my fat out, I needed to get that uh, replenished, refilled. But I didn't go crazy. I mean, I had a female, and I don't tell anybody, get yourself a female plastic surgeon because the guys are like, they're crazy. They want to fulfill some masturbatory fantasy. You know, I, had, I went to see two male plastic surgeons and they were like, Bring us back an image from like Hustler or Playboy or whatever of the tits that you like. That's what I mean, the tits that I like. What the fuck, I mean, what is this like? <laughs> I'm coming to you because I thought you knew about anatomy and I've explained to you like who I am in a sense of like I'm active. I like to do a lot of sports and stuff. I don't want some giant cumbersome stripper titties you know on my test <laughs> i'm not interested in that oh no 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 everybody always want they go start out going smaller but then they want to go big i'm like no i don't want to go bigger i want something that fits my fucking body that's all i want you know i don't want anybody spooking that i had my tits done you know because they're like being like that <laughs> i want to just have them look like my original tits which i was happy with so that's what i did i went to see a female doctor and she was like I don't know how many cc's I'm putting in until I get you on the table and I see what's happening and then we put you upright and then I put in the amount of cc's that I think work for your body and I was like okay this works for me and your office is beautiful which also is a good sign that you have some level of taste and aesthetic so <laughs> I never go to a plastic surgeon who has an ugly office like immediately <laughs> yeah no she did a really good job and you can't tell. Nobody can tell. Because they look like what they're supposed to look like. I like to call it just merely a correction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I'm not doing it to, like I said, go work in a strip club. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a correction. That's what was there. You performed an act that was necessary because you have to feed your children. And then you correct it. And that's it. No shame in that game. You do what you got to do. Yeah. I, I love it. What did your, what did your husband think? When you I mean, he was that? fine with it. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like a thing. Like, again, it wasn't like this sort of fetishy thing. 
it was like, oh, okay, that's what they look like when I met you. <laughs> it wasn't like, oh, wow, oh my God, you're fulfilling my Playboy penthouse hustler fantasy of tits. No, yeah. that wasn't, that was, and that was not the goal either, far from it. So that's how that goes. And so, so what has it been like um, working as a black female artist that's constantly, constantly interacting and antagonizing the white gaze? What is it like to walk through that world and exist in that way with a white partner? Oh. Well, okay, let me see. White partner probably makes it easier. I do photographs that are, I mean, I think they look fabulous over your couch, but for the general public, or let's say the general art public, maybe they find it a little heavy. Well, because they have to actually maybe talk about it. Because when people see the work, they're gonna say something. You can't just walk by my work and be like, <laughs> you know, like, like it was an abstract painting, you know what I'm saying, where you're like, oh, I like the texture, the color, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's not that, there's always some sort of statement happening, I think. So you have to explain it, you know? So if you got your mama's last supper, let's just say, and you had it in your home, in your dining room, where Russell Simmons does have it, which is nice, but... Uh, people are going to ask you about it. So you have to explain, you know, my story behind it or whatever your or you can bring your own story to it. I don't care. I'm not there. I'm not watching you. <laughs> so, but the thing is, my point is to say is that it will incite some sort of reaction and conversation from your guest. And I think for some people, some people just don't want to be bothered with that kind of thing either. I think a lot of people just want to be able to hang something on their wall. You know, it looks good. They can say it was done by so-and-so, so-and-so. Like, that's like the, the brand, the status, and that's it. That's the, end of, that's the end of talking about it for the most part. Uh, and I've always chose to sort of deal with um, topics that, I mean, I don't find them difficult, but I think maybe some people might find it a little bit difficult. So having said all that, let's see, without the white husband and my own volition, you know, I'd be living under a bridge, you know, if I was waiting for people, <laughs> 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 if I was waiting for people to, you know, like buy it and, you know, I'll do all of that sort of stuff. So yeah, it comes in handy. Yeah. Especially to this day, you know, you want properties and stuff, you send in, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> people act differently, people react differently. Still exist, still exist. It's hidden, but it still exists. Even this house here, we found out some years later, like after, I don't know, probably, well, it's about 30, 31 years, probably 25 years in, we found out that apparently, nobody knew this before, that the, um, the people that built this house had made the comment that if they knew that black people were involved, 
they wouldn't have sold the house. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? You know, I thought that shit was over. Now it's just more subtle. So yeah, that's when it comes in handy to have a white person, that's for sure. Absolutely. I went to Panama. And in Panama, those Negroes over there are so like crazy with self-hatred. I said to my friend, you know, who's black and he owns a couple of buildings in the, the old section. And he's like, it's really hard to get people to work and, you know, keep that momentum and uh, motivation going. And so what I realized, I said, oh shit, we should start like a little agency called Rent a White Person. And see, then you'd have, you tell the white person all the things that you need to have happen on your, like say your, your construction site. And then the white person will go and tell all the Negroes that are working on the construction site and watch the shit get done. Okay, but when you're dealing with the black person, it's like, oh, you know, we didn't get it, you know, all this happened, all that happened. They deal with the white person because they're so used to that master-slave relationship that they get it done. It's in their genes. It's terrible. <laughs> it's true though. <laughs> it's in their fucking boots. I mean, you know, it's like the racism is like folded in, you know what I'm saying, into themselves. Mm. You know, or I can go to, this is also in Panama. So beware in Panama, black people. And it's really insidious because um, at the same time, it makes you, you, don't, you it's hard to trust anything. You can't trust, am I getting the right service? Am I getting the service? Mm. You know, are they holding back? And my example with that was staying at the Hard Rock Hotel in uh, Panama City, not to be confused with Florida, but the real one. It was like a great hotel. I mean, normally in other cities, I, I probably would never go to a Hard Rock, but actually in Panama, it was the people, the staff, everybody was lovely. The place is like a photo op every, you know, three feet you walk, you know, there's something. And it was like really cool. So one day I get a lot of massages. I love massage. Okay, so it's, it's not just something I do on Mother's Day, hardly. It's probably once every 10 days. <laughs> And I go to get a massage at the Hard Rock, and I wanted a deep tissue massage. And um, get down on the table, you know, she starts working on me, and she's giving me Swedish, like long, stroke, long, oily strokes, right? That's not what I want. It's like deep tissue, you, the masseuse, you should be starting to sweat, like 10 minutes in, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This is not a fucking walk in the park. So, I said to myself, okay, maybe, because I did a 90 minute, right? So I said to myself, okay, maybe this is just her warm up. But when we got to the 15 minute mark, I'm like, what are you doing? You know, you need to go in. I need elbows. I need, you know, <laughs> I need you walking on my back. I need all of that. And then she pretends like she doesn't speak English or something, right? Meantime, I'm staying at the Hard Rock because it's an American fucking hotel. So it's like, wait, you should be, you know, know some English. So she goes away. She didn't come back. I mean, well, I don't know when she came back, but like after 10 minutes, I was like, what the fuck? This is not going well. Cause you always know when the massage is not going well. You know, you gotta know when to get off the table. So I got off the table and I was like, fuck it. I just walked out and I go to the salon because um, I needed to finish my, you know, pedicure and manicure. So I'm sitting there and then all of a sudden the GM, the general manager comes in and she says to me, oh, I understand you had an issue with the um, 
the spa, the massage. And I was like, well, I don't know if I had an issue, but you have people here who are completely incompetent and they don't know what they're doing. I asked for a deep tissue massage and a woman was giving me a fucking Swedish massage. And the GM says to me, he says, did you ever think it might be racism? I was like, what? Racism? What do you mean? Like, I, I deal with that all the time in my work, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I was like, what? She's like, yeah. She goes, because, you know, you're darker skin and uh, the masseuses like India, in, you know, like Mestisto or whatever the hell. And um, she feels that, you know, she shouldn't have to be, you know, serving you. <laughs> because in the hierarchy of their stupid colors is the, you know, the darker you are, you know, the least respect, you, don't, you get no respect, you get nothing. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? And she goes, no, and she basically just broke it down. That's what I just said. So I was like, well, obviously this is not the first time this thing has happened. She goes, no, it's not, you know? She goes, but you know, I'm looking into this and this one, I mean, you know, she may have to go, you know what I'm saying? Because it's too much. I mean, she was just like super duper candid. Obviously she comped all my shit, you know what I'm saying? Brought me champagne, you know, hors d'oeuvres, the whole nine yards. But I was like, what? And that's when I say, that's where it gets to be insidious because, you know, let's say somebody else, maybe they don't know what deep tissue is. You know what I'm saying? They ask for something and they get something else because it's assumed by this moron that you don't know, you know, and she's going to pretend like, oh, well, she's, she's a Negro. She doesn't know, you know, this is a fluke that she's even here, right? That's how she's thinking. You know, this girl that lives in a hut somewhere outside of Panama City. But these are the kind of things that I'm also interested in trying to sort of um, break with my work. And that's why I like to return the gaze to the viewer. This is why I feel it's important to use the scale so that lovely people like that woman, if they were to come across it, <laughs> you know, would have to feel its impact and, you know, feel but I'd like to think of that the self-love that they are lacking so much of, you know, because there's so much self-hatred that they've been brainwashed with. I mean, they truly drank the Kool-Aid, you know, whatever the colonizers said to them about, you know, Africans and black people, they have taken it to heart and they have made it like they are the worst, you know, we don't want to be associated with them. We don't want to be associated with any, of their beauty standards, we will, you know, we will bleach our skin, we will straighten our hair, we will do everything possible to try to be white. And I'm like, huh? But, you know, it's drilled in there. You know, it's like that Ed Bernays thing. It's like in their psyche. And I'd like to, I mean, in an ideal world, I would love to flip the script on this thing, you know? Because I'm always like asking myself, or even sometimes I'll ask white people like, how did you do it? How did you go all around the world and tell everybody they was ugly and they had to look like you when you are devoid of sun, okay? That's not a healthy look that's necessarily, you know what I'm saying? But you convinced everybody in the world they had to look like you. Like, how do you do that? That is, that is a skill, you know? And you hold up the beauty standard. And if, and if the black nappy hair girl doesn't look like you on some level with her 
straightened weave or whatever it may be. And, you know, she got her nose done, her lips shrunk, who knows? I mean, you know, oh, that's not acceptable. This is ridiculous. We have to celebrate ourselves, fuck it. Like our hair, I mean, we can do 10,000 different things with this freaking hair. You can sculpt it, you can do whatever you want. You know, white people's hair? I'm like, no, it's fucking stringy. It gets caught in my shower, then it gets caught in my toes, and then it stays there for three or four days, and then you pull out this like long hair, and I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> It's not cool. Our hair comes out. It's a little circle. You know, it doesn't bother anybody. <laughs> so I'm like, I mean, I'm being silly, but I mean, it's like, but I'm going, we as Black, we need to celebrate ourselves. We need to learn how to love ourselves again. You know, and by that, it's also by, you know, learning some of the history, obviously, of when we did run things. I mean, mm -hmm. the way I look at the universe, and I might have mentioned it yesterday, every dog has his day. Right? Mongolians were for 35 years. In Africa, they were obviously ruling and whatnot at one point with the pyramids and everything else, right? They were way ahead of everyone else, you know? Then it moved, you know, it moved <laughs> to Asia and it moved to Europe. And, you know, now we're in a European phase, which is probably the most, you know, sort of um, murderous stage. And I go, America's had, you know, or the, the whites, the Caucasians, they've had, you know, what, a good 400 years. I mean, is this all really just, you know, so heinous? Like, you know, they want to tell our children we were only slaves, you know, that's all we ever did. You know, and I'm like, okay, wait, first of all, it, normally speaking, that doesn't really look, it's not a good look for you white people that you like enslaved people, you know, were brutal, you know, killed them, did all kinds of heinous things that you like to do, you know, that you developed during your inquisition phase. It's time for black folks to take back and to eradicate the views that have been implanted into their heads. I think uh, we underestimate. I mean, I think we're taught to underestimate from day one. Mm -hmm. And um, that needs to change. And what advice would you give to any young artist, like just starting their career, who may be listening? Now looking back, I mean, I mean, it's sort of like okay, it sounds cliche, but there's a lot behind that statement when you start breaking it down. It's like don't believe the fucking hype, okay? It's like yes. Money's nice, money is power, money makes, you know, things comfortable and whatnot. But, but I think for the ultimate long haul with the money is to sort of, you have to stay true to who you are and what it is you want to bring to this world and how do you want to change it? So I would just say, in a sentence, do you. That's the biggest thing. Yeah, because if you start doing other things and you start second guessing yourself, and then it's and then once you second guess yourself, whatever great idea you may have had, you've now turned it into shit. Anyway, you know. So I always say, you follow the heart. I mean, create from the heart. The mind is not where you create from. That that I can say. If you go to the galleries, you know, in Chelsea or whatever, you see a lot of stuff that's created with the mind. 
And guess what? It's ugly. It's not inviting. It's standoffish. And you're standing there like, uh, what are they trying to say? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, uh, I don't get it. Uh, oh, you know, but if you don't know, like, you know, some art history, you're like, oh my God, well, I'm ignorant. So I guess they must know because it's here. And I'm like, no, it's just fucking ugly to begin with because it's way too coming out of the person's head. And obviously there's issues. <laughs> They're not a happy camper. You know, so they bring that to you, the viewer. They can't help it. And that's why a lot of that stuff also can be very successful because people relate to that because most people are in that state of crazy mind, right? But I would like to see some joy and some calm brought back onto the scene, you know, where people can be people. And by that, I mean just being honest, honest to themselves honest to what they believe in and what they want to do with their work. I think that that to me is the key thing. And also kids, don't copy other people. That's really fucking annoying. It's not necessarily, it's not a compliment. What you're supposed to do is you're supposed to look at what came before you, bring it into yourself, process it, not through your fucking head, but through your heart. And then you come out with something else. And then we can say, oh, this was inspired by X, Y, Z. And then that's a beautiful progression. But this should have just, just taking and copying the damn thing over, not good, not progressive. Not moving the human race forward at all, making it stagnant, boring. Like my example of that would be, I'd say Betty Sarr, The Liberation of Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben. I can take the title, but the imagery, completely different. Same kind of meaning though, underneath it all, right? That we can keep, but I'm saying, but in terms of the visual or whatever, completely different, completely. And to me, not just because I did it, but I think that's the way that is inspiring and exciting as an artist when you do that. People will get it, you know, probably when I'm dead, whatever. But it doesn't really matter. And don't do the starving artist thing. That's stupid. Who wants to be starving? Not, you know, no food, no water, no clothes. And you have to say that you make better art when you're in that state. And I say to people, you know why you think they make better art when they're in that state? Because you're in that motherfucking state too. I don't want to be in that state. I do not want to be in that state. And another tip. Don't be intimidated when people say to you, oh, so what's next? Because that's another one that I've solved. Because when they ask me that one, I pause. And at first I say, this is not enough. What we're looking at right now. <laughs> you know, I just showed you fucking 500 prints or whatever it may have been. And you're asking me what's next? Yeah. But I'm saying you're asking me what's next because you are trying to throw your anxiety onto me, which I refuse. <laughs> and I'm throwing it back to you because I don't know what's next. And I'm happy without knowing what's next. But I know whatever is next will be incredible. That's it. Mm. You know what I'm saying? I don't have to sit here and go, okay, my next project is this, this, and this, and this, and this. You know, so I say I'm busy. No, uh-uh. 
that, that, that's your freaking paranoia and anxiety and shit. And that's why you're taking medication. And I'm not. Okay? So, let's be clear. <laughs> I am living in the present moment. That's where I'm at right now. And that's the best place you can be. Not about my past, even though I'm forced and compelled to have to talk about it. But, <laughs> but I don't live there. And, and then in the future, the only thing I know is that I'm going to die. That's it. That I can guarantee you all. You will die. So after that, what else? Why are you rushing to your death? <laughs> I'm just trying to take it, you know, at a nice walking pace. That's all. When I get there, I get there. And it's all good, you know, but I'm not trying to project out into it. <laughs> and that's what happens when you spend your time. What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen, you know, next week? Blah, 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 blah. And if anything, I hope that this pandemic, perhaps for some, not maybe for all, has brought that to light where people will be, wait a second. Let me just deal with right now, because right now, I don't know what's happening from one day to the next day. I really feel sorry for the type A people right now, because I know they have to be going out of their fucking mind. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but I'm like... Guilty. Huh? Guilty. Yeah. I said guilty. There you go. That's what I'm saying. You got to let it go. You know, no, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. You just have to let it go. I said, it's not, it's not you have no control over it. Isn't that astounding? Because before you thought you had all the control, right? But now mother nature has come in there basically, or the Chinese according to Trump, <laughs> whomever, whatever, the bat, yeah. Wuhan itself, um, you have no control over it. You have no control. So let it go and enjoy the moment. That's it, that's all we have. So if you want further information on this topic. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's great. Where, where can people connect with you? There's, well, people can connect with me on uh, Renee Cox Studio on Instagram. And then on my website, which is ReneeCox.org. Yeah. I'm not hard to locate. Yeah. I like these accessible, even contrary to my team behind me who's like you're too accessible you need to not be that accessible and i'm like but come on who fucking cares at the end of the day i don't yeah <laughs> i think people should be accessible yeah so that other people can talk and express their views and stuff and yeah i'm older so i think i'm fucking wiser and as an elder in the community, even though I don't look like an elder, but I feel I have things to share and, you know, can help young people, you know, with some stupid, ridiculous pain that they may inflict on themselves just because nobody told them otherwise. Mm. Oh. Well, thank you. And thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. Um, and I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate our friendship so much. Really, really, really. I, well, I think it got, it got more solidified now. Yeah. Over yeah, these, yeah. I mean, these two days and then last week, and maybe somebody might even not even say 
you know, it was like a Q&A, but it was still the beginnings of conversation. Yeah, an ongoing conversation, yes. actually, which is, which is, which is great. Mm-hmm. And for that, like I, you know, we didn't, we didn't speak about it, but just how important like relationships are. Absolutely. In your life and your career and your development, like as a human being, like mm-hmm. how important relationships are and, and how they change and shift over time, you know, how they, they really undulate, but yet they're still kind of shaping you mm-hmm. for whatever period of time they exist. But anyway, thank you again, Renee. Um, have a wonderful time out there in your 31-year-old home that you weren't supposed to be in, just like Michelle Obama. <laughs> and thank you for sharing so much. I mean, I, I mean, no, you're, you're actually right. I learned a lot. I learned a lot today. So thank you for being open and sharing. If you're not open and sharing, then what's the point? <laughs> That's, that's perfect. Point, huh? Yeah, that's the perfect thing to end. That's all right. That's all right. Thank you all so much for listening to this conversation with the amazing and highly entertaining artist, Renee Cox. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with your friends. Shout us out over on Instagram at Black Imagination Podcast and let us know what part of the conversation you enjoyed the most. Be sure to subscribe wherever you receive your podcast. Rate and review us on iTunes, which helps a lot. And if you'd like to support this work, be sure to click on the support link in the show notes. We have so many amazing and exciting guests coming up. I cannot wait to share them with you. And you know, stop waiting for the world to validate you. You are your own anointer. Declare yourself. Black imagination is liberation. Stay curious and keep dreaming.